Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hello everybody, I'm Christine Jenkins. I'm Professor of Respiratory Medicine at the University of New South Wales and at the George Institute for Global Health. And I'm going to be talking about when is it appropriate to use inhaled corticosteroids for COPD. The COPD landscape has changed over the last few years, uh, not the least to which there is now a range of different devices, a range of different combinations, and not only of classes of bronchodilators and inhaled steroids or not, but also different drugs within each of the classes. And so it has become much more complex, I think probably much more confusing, and there probably is a great deal of uh, uncertainty now in some of your minds about where inhaled corticosteroids fit, given that we now know that dual bronchodilators are a very effective therapy for COPD to start with. Who should receive inhaled steroids uh, ultimately? Well, I'm just going to bring you up to speed with the guidelines, the global guidelines for obstructive lung disease, which we call GOLD. The goals for treatment of COPD are very straightforward. Uh, it is to relieve symptoms, improve exercise tolerance, improve health status or quality of life. So that, that bucket of items is really summarised by symptom management or symptom reduction and improvement. And then we want to prevent disease progression, prevent and treat exacerbations and reduce mortality. And those have been somewhat the holy grail of COPD management. Can we reduce mortality? Can we reduce disease progression? Well, we're now getting some evidence that we can and the question of inhaled steroids is very relevant to that. And that's reducing the risk of a bad outcome from COPD. So you're trying to manage the symptoms, improve the patient's quality of life and reduce their risks in terms of the long-term trajectory of COPD. And what do we mean by that trajectory? Well, you know, if we were looking at a CT scan, we would say that it was the trajectory from having very minimal emph emphysema through to much more severe emphysema. And you see in these two scans, the right-hand scan, there is a very marked emphysema present here, um, particularly in the right upper lobe. And you don't see that as markedly initially, but there are some very small holes there, which are a clear indication of, of the presence of very early emphysema. And we might talk about it in terms of symptom progression. Uh, so uh, this is the COPD assessment test, and I would encourage you, and I will mention it later on, to use this test. It's so simple to use, and it will give you a really comprehensive understanding of the impact of the patient's symptoms on their day-to-day -day life. And their symptoms progress as well. That's part of the trajectory of COPD. And then there's a frequency of exacerbations and they become more frequent as the patient becomes more obstructed. And you're trying to reduce the frequency of those exacerbations, which is also part of the trajectory of COPD and an important area of potential uh, impact of inhaled corticosteroids. 
And then there's lung function decline, and that is critical and interplays with the COPD exacerbation risk. And so you're trying to minimise the likelihood of lung function decline with optimal pharmacotherapy. So how do you think about all these different dimensions of COPD? And I think there are some very simple ways of doing it, and I'd encourage you to think about what's going to work best for you in your practice. But one of the ways is using the modified MRC score for breathlessness and knowing how breathless the patient is. And this is important because it's going to inform you about the interventions you're going to help to put in place for them, whether they're going to go to pulmonary rehab, how you're going to act encourage them to be physically active and as well as uh, managing their pharmacotherapy and minimising their risks with vaccination. So the modified MRC score goes from grade zero to grade four, that is zero, it's, it's only people like you and me, we get breathless with strenuous exercise, so we're grade zero. COPD patients most often find themselves in grade three or four. I have stopped for breath after walking about 100 metres or after a few minutes on level ground or I'm too breathless to leave the house, or I'm breathless when dressing or undressing. We've done some recent work on this, and patients regard I am too breathless to leave the house as really the worst kind of breathlessness. They, they do not feel confident to leave the house. And that question about confidence is also in the CAT score, in the COPD assessment test. So you can also get that information um, that way, and that, that is very useful. And I want to emphasise that although it's so important to know what the patient's FEV1 is, is it above or below 50 or 60% predicted, for instance, it's also important to understand that some patients will have quite good FEV1s and yet quite marked breathlessness or risk of exacerbations, and others will have quite poor FEV1s and yet still have um, better preserved exercise tolerance and less dyspnea. So don't assume just because you've got a particular measurement that suggests a patient has a very uh, severe form of airflow limitation, that they'll necessarily be quite as breathless or as similarly the converse. Don't assume that your very breathless patient has terrible lung function. Measure it and then you will really know. But what you see here in these four panels is, this is the MMRC score, as I said, um, going from zero to four. And here you can see a gradation in that patients with more severe FEV1 impairment, here 40%, are more likely to be up in these top two categories, a score of three or four. On the other hand, if you look here at the six minute walk distance, and you can see a, a walk distance of around 400 metres, 300 to 400, is really very good for a COPD patient. And, uh, but you can see there's a huge scatter of lung function from 20% FEV1 here, where some patients can walk five or 600 metres and others can only walk 100 metres. So there are really loose relationships between these various scores, and that's why we need to have a multidimensional approach to COPD. It's not just one measurement or one value that's going to inform you about where a patient's at. So this is the COPD assessment test, and it is best practice to assess symptom impact. If you are really, really engaged with your COPD patients, you will be doing this. And what you ask them to do is fill out this score, and you can give them a hard copy. They can sit in the waiting room and do it. Do it. It's so simple, even with you. It'll only take them two minutes. Um, and they put a cross in the box up the top here, for instance, I never cough or I cough all the time. And they score from zero to five, 
and uh, progressively they get scores for I have no phlegm, my chest does not feel tight, my chest feels very tight, etc. And here's the question about um, I'm not at all confident leaving my home because of my lung condition. So it's really useful for you to have this, these scores and you can tote it up and you can follow it over time. And you might do it every six months roughly, every 12 months sometimes, and you will get a very clear idea about where the symptoms are going in this patient with COPD. Now, we do talk about the severity of COPD in relation both to symptoms and lung function. And I just draw your attention to the fact that the COPDx guidelines uh, in Australia uh, talk about typical lung function. So again, they're saying, look, it's not absolutely rigid, this relationship between these symptoms, having few symptoms, being breathless on mild to moderate exertion, having some cough and sputum and little or no effect on activities of daily living. But generally that patient will have an FEV1 of 60 to 80. But some patients in that symptom severity will have lower FEV1s. On the other hand, if you come across here to an FEV1 of less than 40% predicted, some of these patients will actually only be mildly breathless or moderately breathless and not necessarily breathless on minimal exertion. So it's really important that you estimate both the lung function and the symptom burden. Exacerbations become more frequent as the symptom burden increases and as the FEV1 worsens. And that's a really important thing for you to know in relation to using inhaled steroids, which is what we're going to get to. And I just remind you about the things that do predict exacerbations because if you identify these things in your patients, you're more likely to be able to help prevent exacerbations. Having a worse FEV1, being older, a worse MMRC score, so a score of three or four, and a lower BMI because these patients often have muscle wasting and are actually physically inactive and have systemic manifestations of their COPD. Having had an exacerbation in the last year, particularly having had a hospital admission, is a major predicting factor for more exacerbations. Having a history of reflux and persistent eosinophilia, which I'll get to talk about in more detail in a moment. And the near-term predictors are if the patient is deteriorating symptomatically, they've had a respiratory infection or exposed to a viral respiratory infection in the last two weeks, and if they have a raised interval white cell count. And season of the year, home indoor temperature, colder temperatures, exposure to viral respiratory infection, uh, predictors of exacerbations, and having an influenza or pneumococcal vaccination that reduces those risks is really important to minimise that chance. So <clears throat> we always start with uh, a long-acting uh, bronchodilator and, in general, a long-acting antimuscarinic. The COPDX Concise Guide tells you that triple therapy, that is not just a LABA and a LAMA, but an inhaled steroid, should be limited to patients with repeated exacerbations and more severe COPD symptoms that cannot be adequately managed by their dual therapy, by their LABA and LAMA. It also says that uh, triple therapy results in a lower rate of moderate or severe exacerbations and better lung function and health-related quality of life. So this is telling you that the addition of the inhaled steroid on top of the long-acting bronchodilators is more likely to be associated with better symptom impact as well as a reduced likelihood of exacerbations. 
but it is for these more severely affected patients. And the decision to alter pharmacotherapy to ramp up from a dual bronchodilator, for instance, to adding in an inhaled steroid should take into account all these things, the patient's functional status, their degree of breathlessness, their history of exacerbations, the complexity of their medication regimen so far. So if you're going to step up, try to think about how you can simplify their inhaler therapy. Particularly think about whether you can put them onto a single triple inhaler rather than a loose triple. Now some patients will tolerate one or the other better, but if you're going to mix and match your inhalers, make sure you know the patient can take their device and use it well. So this again, I will go back to my um, old drum beating and that is that if you've not been seeing a patient for the last couple of years, if you've been seeing them by telephone consultation, I would encourage you to see them in person before winter so that you can check their inhaler use. Uh, patient preference is important and adverse effects as I've already mentioned. The gold guidelines say that an inhaled steroid combined with a LABA is more effective than the individual components in improving lung function and health status and reducing exacerbations in people with moderate to severe COPD. But regular treatment with inhaled steroids increases the risk of pneumonia. So I'll make some comments about that and it's a really important adverse effect of inhaled steroids in COPD patients and you may have to stop it because of that possibility that, or probability or actuality that they have an episode of pneumonia. Recent data suggest a mortality benefit of uh, ICS LABA LAMA compared to LABA LAMA alone in those with a history of frequent exacerbations and or severe exacerbations. So a history of frequent exacerbations, we're talking about exacerbations requiring antibiotics and or oral corticosteroids and severe exacerbations, that is an exacerbation requiring a hospital admission. If patients have either of those two things, then they will do better based on the randomized control trials on an inhaled steroid added to their labalama and not just on the labalama alone. The gold guidelines have a traffic light system now, and this is the 2022 update, and uh, this is uh, a useful thing to think about. So strong support for initiating inhaled steroids, having a history of hospitalisation, having two or more moderate exacerbations uh, per year or in the last year, having a blood eosinophil count 300 or greater. That's an absolute count and I'll, I'll mention more about that. And having a history uh, of concomitant asthma, of course the patient will do better and should have an inhaled steroid. Consider use, this is your amber, consider use if there's been one uh, moderate exacerbation of COPD per year in the last couple of years. This will not be all your COPD patients at all, only some of them. And a bloody eosinophil count of 100 to 300. And there is a bit of evidence for increasing benefit of inhaled steroids in this amber zone of 100 to 300. Against use of ICS. Repeated pneumonia events, bloody eosinophils under 100, and a history of uh, mycobacterial infection. A history of mycobacterial infection, of course, can be a recent uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection or a typical uh, mycobacterial infection, TB. Uh, 
how long ago? Well, uh, if it's long, long ago that a patient had TB, it's been fully treated and there's been absolutely uh, no evidence of any subsequent problems or any evidence of a nodule or a previous scar getting any larger, then you don't need to be worried, but you just should keep an eye on that x-ray, maybe year by year, uh, if a patient is on sustained moderate doses of inhaled steroids. Um, but more recent infection or uh, non-tuberculous mycobacteria is, is at risk of um, a reactivation if patients are taking moderate to high dose inhaled steroids. So uh, the COPDX guidelines uh, do suggest consider adding inhaled steroids under these circumstances of frequent exacerbations and also when the lung function is getting down to this, this level of uh, 40 to 60% predicted and below and when the symptoms are moderate to severe. Well, as we know, we start with a llama in general, and uh, there is evidence for llamas, in this case, teotropium, being superior to a LABA for reduction of exacerbations in COPD. Uh, this is a systematic review that looks at dual bronchodilators compared to uh, um, a monobronchodilator, and uh, that is a llama or a LABA alone, and there is improvement in FEV1 and also in exercise tolerance and quality of life on the dual bronchodilator compared to the mono. Triple therapy. Here's a summary. In COPDX, I've already mentioned, triple therapy results in a lower rate of moderate to severe exacerbations, better lung function and quality of life than dual therapies. It is the most tr effective treatment in reducing total exacerbations and but inhaled steroid combinations, whether it's an ICS-LABA or an ICS-LABA-LAMA, have an increased probability of uh, pneumonia. And that is about a 50% increased risk. So if you have a patient vulnerable to lower respiratory infection and pneumonia specifically, that's when you need to be wary about using inhaled steroids. And if you're using inhaled steroids in patients who are having recurrent lower respiratory infections and or pneumonia, then that's a signal that you should consider either reducing the dose or stopping completely. Triple therapy should therefore be limited to patients with exacerbations and more severe COPD symptoms that cannot be adequately managed by dual therapy and in patients who have COPD phenotypes most likely to respond, and that's an eosinophilic patient. Now, what's the evidence for that? And this is just one study, and there are now many, that suggests that patients who are highly eosinophilic and are not receiving an inhaled steroid have a higher likelihood, this is the green bars, patients on Volantarol alone in this case, the fluticasone volantarol, there is a lower likelihood, this is the turquoise bars, of uh, having an exacerbation, the higher the uh, eosinophil count. And the reductions in exacerbations with fluticasone uh, furate volantarol versus volantarol alone in this study, a 24% reduction in patients whose baseline eosinophils were between 2 and 4%, a 32% reduction in those with counts which were 4 to 6%, and a 42% reduction in those with eosinophil counts of greater than 6%. Now that's a, that's a high eosinophil count, and most patients won't have that. 
But I want to make an important point here. You might think, oh, these are patients who really have asthma and hasn't been diagnosed or they have asthma COPD overlap. No, this is simply based on their eosinophil count. And some patients with, with COPD have moderate ear, peripheral eosinophilia. We're talking here about a blood count, not about uh, sputum eosinophilia necessarily. So you can easily do this in primary care and ascertain whether your patients are most likely to respond. And what you'll see here is that, again, this is evidence from a different group of studies, this time from budesonide, glycoperonium and formoterol, and glycopyrrolate. And what you see here is that the patients who are on the uh, bronchodilators alone and not on inhaled steroids have higher likelihoods of exacerbations once the threshold of around 150 eosinophils is reached. Below that, there is no difference. And that's why we say there is no need to consider necessarily an inhaled steroid in somebody whose eosinophil count is under 100 to 150. But as it goes up, the patients who are on the inhaled steroid are more likely to do better in terms of exacerbation risk. And if you withdraw inhaled steroids in patients who are on triple, what is likely to happen? Well, we know from the uh, WISDOM study that you can withdraw um, uh, the uh, inhaled steroid and over six months not necessarily see an increase in exacerbations. But you do see some drop in lung function. So again, you need to weigh up the pros and cons of stopping or reducing an inhaled steroid uh, in patients who are on a triple therapy if they do have pneumonia and you have to stop it. Uh, just to sort of go to the populations of patients for whom uh, inhaled steroids are very helpful, whether you measure the eosinophil count or not. Uh, these are two studies. Uh, the ethos study I just want you to focus on here on the right-hand side. Patients who had a history of one or more moderate or severe exacerbations in the last year and their FEV1s were 25 to 60% predicted normal. Um, and this is the impact study, and in a very similar group of patients, a frequent exacerbated phenotype with moderate lung function impairment, under 60% predicted. What you see here is the lowest exacerbation rate is on the triple therapy, the fluticasone furate, eumeclidinium, and volantarol, compared to fluticasone and volantarol alone, this is the ICS-LABA, or the dual bronchodilator. So again, evidence in this moderately severe group that inhaled steroids make a difference. But it's not for everybody with, with COPD. And the milder group of patients who do not qualify for these studies will do very well on dual bronchodilators alone. Uh, this is also from that impact study. And again, you can see this is time uh, to uh, first moderate or severe exacerbation being lowest in the patients on triple compared to the ICS-LABA or the dual bronchodilators. And mortality. And in this moderately severely impaired group, FEV1 under 60% predicted, frequent exacerbators in the last year, either a hospitalised exacerbation or two or more uh, exacerbations, there is a significant benefit in being on um, an inhaled steroid compared to a dual bronchodilator alone in mortality risk over a one-year period. And the same is shown here, exacerbation reduction for that ethos study that I mentioned. Um, the lowest is on the, the patients who received the triple therapy and uh, the, the 
Same applies also for moderate to severe exacerbations versus the dual therapy. You see a 24% reduction in the annual rate of exacerbations versus dual and a significant reduction in the annualised rate of exacerbations versus the inhaled steroid long-acting beta agonist. And uh, this is all cause mortality. So from another study, but with similar comparisons between the triple therapy, the ICS Labalama, the dual ICS Laba, and the dual bronchodilators. And you see the very best outcome in terms of mortality uh, for the patients who were on the triple therapy. But you also see uh, a good outcome for the patients on ICS Laba in relation to mortality compared to dual bronchodilators. Again, speaking to the fact that inhaled steroids here in this moderately severe group, we're not talking about milder COPD. We're talking about people who exacerbate with moderately severe impact from symptoms and, and poorer lung function. These people actually do do better in terms of mortality risk on inhaled corticosteroids. Uh, this just goes to the issue of pneumonia, and this takes you back to the impact study, the first data I showed, and what you see here is a significantly higher likelihood of pneumonia in the patients who were receiving the inhaled steroid on triple or the ICS larva compared to the dual bronchodilator. So I guess I've, I'm talking about the pros of adding inhaled steroid for this moderately severely impacted group, both in terms of exacerbations and symptoms, but also warning you about pneumonia, look out for it. And in patients who have it, then just be very, very careful to treat it very promptly, alert the patients, make sure that they are receiving the best therapy they can and that the inhaled steroid is really helpful for them. And this just again, a meta-analysis showing you the reduced likelihood of pneumonia in patients who are receiving a dual bronchodilator compared to a LABA ICS in this case. So do write your patients an action plan so they know exactly what to do. Consider giving them an antibiotic script and or oral corticosteroids that they can use promptly at home to treat early if they have evidence of infection. Uh, I'd encourage you to go to the Lung Foundation website where there are a lot of resources that you can use for your patients, but particularly you can download an action plan and, and use it for your patients. Print it off, give them an, a printed version and you can keep a digital version. So in summary, when to use inhaled steroids in COPD? In patients who are exacerbating, uh, having uh, hospital admission uh, once a year or in the previous year or more. Exacerbations, two requiring oral corticosteroids or uh, antibiotics or both in the previous year or on average. Patients whose FEV1s are less than 50% predicted and are markedly impacted by their symptoms on dual bronchodilators, which they are taking correctly. Do check that. Don't assume the drug is unhelpful. It may be the problem is the device, not the combination dual bronchodilators. And when the eosinophil count is 300 or more, do consider inhaled steroids as an additional means by which you can reduce exacerbations in this group. If it's lower than that, but there is definite benefit in symptoms in this moderately severely impacted group of patients, then yes, you may continue inhaled steroids. But de-escalate if there is no evidence of benefit and in particular if the patient is suffering from recurrent pneumonias. So I hope that's been helpful to you in understanding when to add inhaled steroids. 
I want to remind you that we're talking here about exacerbating patients with major symptom impact and moderately severe impairment of their lung function. But in that group of patients, those who are eosinophilic will do best of all on inhaled steroids. But nevertheless, even those who are not eosinophilic necessarily to that sort of level of 300 may still do very well in terms of symptom impact and exacerbation reduction. Just keep your eye out for pneumonia and minimise their risks by vaccinating them and by treating them very promptly if they develop a lower respiratory tract infection. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.